Hi, and welcome to Hella Healthy, the world's sickest podcast. I'm Dr. Serenity Della Porta, your guide on this journey through health. Today, we are going to talk about what the word healthy means and discuss how the field of health psychology came to be and how it helps us better understand the true nature of health. The word healthy is generally used to mean without disability or disease, but that is an incomplete definition. As far back as 1946, the World Health Organization defined health as a complete state of physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of infirmity or disease. Yet the word health is still most commonly used to mean simply the absence of disability or disease. Rarely do we infer a person's social or mental health is good when we say a person is healthy. A person could be going through a difficult and painful divorce, or working at a high-stress, low-meaning job, and we might very well still find ourselves saying this person is healthy if they don't suffer from disease or disability. On episode one, we discussed a very broad and simplistic overview of how our modern booming health and wellness industry came into existence, and how this persistent emphasis on physical health in our culture and language originated. That discussion was incomplete, but it did set the stage for just how recently we have come to appreciate the psychological and social aspects of health in a mainstream way. It's important we go back and fill in some of the gaps to uncover how the field of health psychology came on the scene and impacted views of health as well. As you know, the goal of my career and this podcast is to help share the information we have learned through health psychology to help others better understand health and make informed health choices. With that in mind, let's go back and talk more in depth about how early theories and research inform our current understanding of health and how they laid the foundations for the field of health psychology. I wanna say not all episodes will be this history heavy, I've come to learn as I grow older, however, that if you really want to understand something accurately, you often need to go back to the beginning and learn its history. That's why I am starting with history before moving on to more current topics of interest. What are the key events in the timeline of health psychology? How did we come to understand that health is about more than the absence of disease or disability? We discussed the fact that in ancient times, the most popular view of disease was a spiritual one. However, Hippocrates and Galen, who were early physicians and lived in the late BC's early ADs and are widely viewed as the fathers of modern medicine, were among the first people to propose a biological basis for disease when they put forth the humoral view that we discussed on the last episode, humorism and which fell out of favor, but did remain in use up into the mid-1900s. Most people in ancient times viewed and treated disease as a spiritual punishment, but humorism comes on the scene pretty early on and sticks around, influencing thinkers and doctors for quite some time. It's the first time people begin to think about the biological aspects of disease. Then in the 1640s, During the historical Renaissance period, 
Rene Descartes proposes a separation between the mind and the body. He says the mind exists in a spiritual realm, but the body exists in the realm of physical matter. The widespread adoption of this view really opens the door for studying the physical aspects of the human body. It also begins to lead people away from seeing disease as spiritual. However, it created this false dichotomy between mind and body, a so-called mind-body dualism, which persists in some ways to this day. This is one reason why we talk about physical and mental health as if they are two distinctly separate entities. It also reinforces the false notion that our minds cannot be studied because they are part of the spiritual realm. This pushes the timeline for scientific study of the mind back considerably. Around the same time as Descartes, John Locke is born and grows up to be a philosopher and physician. He proposes the philosophy of empiricism. Empiricism states that we can use our senses, experiences, and observations to discover truths about our world. This is the beginning of the scientific method, which is simply a systematic use of the principles of empiricism combined with deductive reasoning to discern truths about our world. When you add empiricism to Descartes' view that the human body is open for study because it falls in the physical realm, this serves as the very beginning of modern medical science. But it isn't until 1879 when Darwin proposes the theory of evolution that thinkers are able to move away from this separation of mind and body and start to look in earnest for links between the mind and body and begin examining how they might work in tandem using a scientific approach. I wanna pause here and say that my discussion centers on views of health that were or are popular in Western cultures, particularly European and American cultures. This reflects the culture I was born, raised, and educated in. However, Eastern cultures and traditions have long been better at integrating the mind and body, as reflected in such practices as yoga and meditation. Though these practices are much more mainstream in places like America today, they have been popular in Eastern cultures for centuries. People who have been raised and educated in Eastern cultures will likely have a very different understanding of how the mind and body are interconnected. Notably though, the vast majority of scientific studies that have increased our understanding of health come from Western medicine. For that reason, it is important to spend time understanding the roots and history of modern medicine. In 1861, a French biologist by the name of Louis Pasteur develops the germ theory of disease, which we discussed quite a bit on episode one. This theory of disease accurately represented the way microbes spread and cause diseases and gained popularity through the late 1800s. As we discussed, it became the clearly dominant and correct view in the early 1900s and revolutionized hygiene, sanitation, and medicine. Also in the 1860s, a French physiologist by the name of Claude Bernard begins to examine hormones. Based on his observations, he proposes the theory of homeostasis. Bernard believed the key to remaining healthy is to keep our cells alive and healthy. 
And in order to do this, we must maintain a healthy internal environment with a certain temperature, certain energy or food, certain level of oxygen and water, and so forth. Homeostasis refers to the physiological processes that our body uses to maintain this internal state of equilibrium. These revolutionary ideas that become popular in the late 1800s, empiricism, evolutionary theory, germ theory, and homeostasis, continue to pave the way for better and better scientific study of health. Though many studies in health and medicine continue to focus solely on the body, by the mid-1900s, researchers are beginning to examine how the mind might be linked to physical health. At this time, the dominant view in psychology was a Freudian psychoanalytic one. This view sees all mental health problems as the result of internal emotional conflicts that manifest in a variety of dysfunctional ways. Thus, early studies into links between psychology and health examined whether the internal emotional conflicts proposed by Freudian theory could be linked to disease outcomes. Remember, though, that empiricism keeps rising in popularity up through the early 1900s until it finally takes its place as the supreme method for serious scholarly work. Psychoanalytic theory and the internal emotional conflicts it proposed could not be studied empirically. So other theories in psychology become popular, particularly the view of behaviorism, which treats the mind as a black box that cannot be known and proposes that we can understand anything we want to about humans simply by observing behaviors. Behaviorists also argued that we could effectively use reinforcements and punishments to shape human behavior in any way we wish. Humanistic psychology is another popular and competing view from the mid-1900s, which puts less emphasis on the empirical study of behavior and focuses instead on human potential and personal growth. Ultimately, all these different views of psychology highlight important psychosocial factors that have now been linked to health, such as emotions, behaviors, and personal values. Today, the field of health psychology is not committed to a particular psychological tradition, but rather it takes an eclectic approach. In the late 1800s, along comes an American medical student by the name of Walter Cannon, who is studying digestion via the new technology of x-rays. He notices that emotions seem to be influencing the way stomachs are moving, and instead of viewing this as noise in his data, noise refers to useless information that covers up the valuable information of interest, he wondered whether his observations might reflect something meaningful. He wondered whether these observations could explain the use of such phrases as having a knot in my stomach or butterflies in the stomach in relation to stressful or anxiety-provoking situations. He goes on to establish the first line of research examining the physiological effects of stress and opens our eyes to how our emotions influence our bodies. Cannon becomes a successful American cardiologist and professor of medicine, and in 1932, 
he publishes a summary of his extensive work on how our body is affected by emotional strife. His findings outline a stress response that includes increased blood sugar, a large output of adrenaline, increased respiration, pulse rate, and blood pressure, and increased blood flow to the skeletal muscles. He terms this response the fight or flight response, and as we all know, the rest is history. I should remind you that between the time Cannon begins medical school in the early 1890s and the time he writes up his work in 1932, the field of medicine has grown extensively and has changed a great deal. As recently as the 1920s, only about a decade before he publishes his treatise on stress and health, physicians joined together for the first time as a science-based field. Cannon's work is the first in-depth examination into the complex ways in which our minds interact with our bodies to influence our health. For the next few decades, more researchers begin to examine these connections, but it is not very popular. In 1977, a psychiatrist by the name of George Engel further outlines the complex interconnected nature of health by proposing the biopsychosocial model of health, which serves to clearly establish the field of health psychology as a formal field of study. The biopsychosocial model views health and illness as the product of biological characteristics such as genes, behavioral factors such as lifestyle, stress, and health beliefs, and social conditions such as cultural influences, family relationships, and social support. Let's use the example of anxiety to show what this might look like. Research indicates that somewhere between 30 to 60% of the variation in anxiety between individuals is linked to genetics. That means the biggest influence on whether any particular individual is likely to suffer from an anxiety disorder is probably their genetic makeup. Now imagine that identical twins are born with a propensity toward developing an anxiety disorder. They have identical genes, but are separated at birth. The first, let's call her twin A, is placed into a financially stable, loving home with two healthy, non-anxious parents who are well-educated and have access to great medical care. The other twin, twin B, is placed into a home where the parents fight frequently, there are high levels of stress, finances are stretched thin, they move around a lot, and one parent commonly responds to stress with anxiety. It is clear to understand how twin A would be less likely than twin B to manifest an anxiety disorder, though they are equally genetically inclined toward developing one. It's easy to imagine how the socialization and resources received by twin A would reduce the likelihood of an anxiety disorder compared to twin B, though she is still more likely than another individual who is not genetically inclined toward anxiety. Anxiety symptoms have been linked to increased risk for certain health problems. 
In this way, twin B's genes plus socialization require her to make much stronger behavioral choices than twin A if she is to prevent her anxiety from negatively impacting her health. But both twins must work harder to behaviorally control their tendencies than individuals who are not genetically predisposed to anxiety. This example demonstrates the complex interactions between biological, psychological, and social factors. What we see is this complex interplay of factors that takes place over a lifetime. People find themselves upon a particular trajectory driven by genetics, environment, socialization, emotions, and behaviors. You today find yourself in a particular place in time and space, but you've been traveling across your life on a particular trajectory heading toward a particular destination influenced by this multitude of interacting factors that continuously intermingle with one another and work together to speed you up, slow you down, or shift your course. I hope you're beginning to appreciate the complexity of the mind and body working together to influence health outcomes. Just as a particular model plane set out on a particular course at a particular speed will continue on that trajectory until it reaches its destination at the correct time, unless the pilot changes course, we continue along our lives on our own trajectory headed toward a mystery destination unless we change course. The more you learn about the complex ways things like behaviors and emotions influence your health, the more you can appreciate just how difficult changing that course really is. Unfortunately, medical education was slow to incorporate the principles of health psychology. And though physicians do work with psychologists, they usually rely on referrals and sending reports to one another rather than offering truly coordinated care. Most physicians are underprepared to properly address the social and psychological aspects of health themselves, and our healthcare system does not make true collaboration across disciplines easy. Ideally, physicians would be regularly communicating and exchanging information with psychologists as they treat patients, but this is all too rare, and it is a missed opportunity given what we know about the biopsychosocial nature of health. In 2005, the World Health Organization established a commission to address what they labeled the social determinants of health. This brought together a group of policy experts, researchers, organizations, and so forth to come up with ideas for how to tackle the growing problem of inequalities in health caused by poverty. The social determinants of health are largely redundant with the view put forth in the biopsychosocial model of health. Both theories view health as influenced by many of the same interconnected biological and psychosocial factors. The only meaningful difference between the social determinants of health and the biopsychosocial model is the primary emphasis and framing. The social determinants of health 
emphasize institutional level influences and characterize the forces as determinant of outcomes with little discussion of choice or individual differences. The focus becomes things like public policy, city planning, access to housing, social services, and social mobility. There's nothing wrong or bad about this, but the biopsychosocial model teaches us to think about the dynamics at the individual level as well, placing more of an emphasis on psychological phenomenon like emotions, meaning, and values. And it's vital that health psychologists be brought to the table to include this important focus on the individual. Forces are rarely determinate. Forces exert influence, but the end results can surprise us. There are always outliers to patterns in data. In this case, that would be people who can thrive and be healthy amongst an unhealthy environment. Studying such individuals to see if there are things people like this have in common might be a useful and informative endeavor. We might learn things that could help people who find themselves facing particularly difficult barriers to health. I think many people passionate about addressing the social determinants of health are hesitant to have such a discussion or don't even think to have it because they are focused on the injustice of health inequity. This is a noble, just, and worthy cause. But let's not forget that long before we can change institutions and systems, we have the opportunity to reach individuals. What can we offer that might help people who find themselves at the bad end of unjust systems before those systems change? Certainly we can begin to help them in some important ways as we also work hard to change institutions and policies. I would like to see psychologists brought into the fold to help do that. Research in medicine looking at the social determinants of health has been skyrocketing in recent years. There are conferences around it. It is a frequent topic of discussion in medicine, yet it has not trickled down to genuinely be included in patient care. There's an increasing awareness of these issues in the field of medicine, but most doctors are unable to really address these concerns due to barriers within our current healthcare systems and because of a lack of social services. Many more doctors today really do understand and care about these things, but feel their hands are tied and there isn't much they can do about it. There is much room for improving the ways we incorporate psychosocial aspects of health into the practice of medicine. This will be a running theme of this podcast. Now take a moment to consider all we have covered today. Think about how complex health is and the fact that even people who have been studying it for many years do not have all the answers to our questions about why some people live long and flourish while others get sick and die young. This is exactly why we need to be thoughtful and careful about who we rely on for health information and advice. If we neglect to consider the psychological and social aspects of health, we are missing a big piece of the puzzle. Though many people are becoming increasingly aware of the importance of things like lowering stress for better health, 
there is a lot of muddy misinformation about how and why psychosocial forces impact health. It's often a lot more about being trendy than being accurate. There is a lot of junk you have to sift through to find the good information. For example, I have read much of the research on stress and health, and it is fascinating. I will share that with you on a future episode where we focus exclusively on that. I think it is a great example to use here though, because it is one of the findings from health psychology that has effectively saturated mainstream thinking. It is pretty much common knowledge that stress is bad for your health, and many people know about the term fight or flight. In fact, services that try to sell stress management tools or techniques are everywhere. As with so many of the things we will talk about on this podcast, however, these tools or services may or may not actually be effective at helping people manage their stress and ultimately improve their health. There is abundant scientific evidence that frequent stress predicts poorer health outcomes. What is less known is which techniques work for which people to manage stress and whether managing stress will actually change later health outcomes. Those are much newer and more complex problems. We can never assume that because we find a link to health that the link is causal, nor can we assume manipulating any particular thing that we find to be important will improve health in a predicted way. All of these things must be tested. This is why the scientific method is so crucial. Though we live in a time where science denialism is a real threat to progress across all areas of society, especially health and medicine, science is the superior way to understand health. Yes, using science to answer questions about health is super complicated and messy. Science is not perfect. It always has its limitations and weaknesses. This is no reason to fall for pseudoscience or reject scientific endeavors. I hope you can tell by listening that it takes a lot of education and training to truly understand health and identify effective ways to improve it. The best chance we have is by using science. The good news is that there has never been more access to high quality experts and scientific information. An informed answer is often only an internet click away. You just need to know the right place to click because the same is equally true for misinformation and health-related schemes. Let's talk a little about how we can use science to know things about health. Though understanding health is complex, measuring it doesn't have to be. There are a few simple but highly informative ways we can measure health to know if things are linked to it. The first is to simply ask a person to rate their own health on a scale of one to five, with one being very poor health and five being very good health. Surprisingly, this one item question called self-rated health is predictive of who gets sick and who dies 
above and beyond key physiological markers, such as blood pressure. We seem to have an intuitive understanding of how healthy we are, despite how complex it is. Of course, we use other more concrete outcomes to measure health when scientifically studying it. Two important ones are morbidity and mortality. Morbidity refers to the occurrence of disease and mortality refers to the occurrence of death. Ideally, you want to find whether a factor can predict all-cause mortality. This means it can predict who is likely to die from any cause rather than only one particular cause. When psychological or social factors can be shown across different samples of people to predict morbidity and or mortality, we know those factors are linked to health in a significant way. Anyone can say anything is important to health, but if a person is able to measure that factor and measure who lives and who dies, and can predict death with the proposed factor, well, it gets pretty hard to say that thing isn't important to health. Of course, this in no way means that it's playing a causal role in death, just to be clear. It simply means it's something we wanna take a closer look at and try to understand how and why it can predict mortality. Before we wrap up, I wanna briefly discuss the popularity of health cults in mainstream health and wellness culture. If you are interested in health and have been seeking health information, you have likely run across one or more of these cults. To be clear, I'm using the term cult pretty loosely here. I'm referring to groups of people who become zealots for one particular narrow approach to health at the exclusion of all other things. Some believe the only thing that matters is keeping carbs low, the so-called keto cult. Some believe the only way to being healthy is to perform extreme levels of strength training. You might know this as the CrossFit cult. Some believe the only way to be healthy is to diffuse the right essential oils. I call this the EO cult. I could go on and on, but you get the picture. These groups focus on one specific thing as the sole key to health. And it is often something that has not even been shown to effectively improve health. Some people belong to more than one of these cults, but often people are viciously loyal to one. If you want to see a great example of this, go on Twitter and read some threads between carnivores and vegans. Carnivores eat only meat, which, as a side note, is clearly an invalid approach to health, as it does not even make any degree of reasonable sense to any person with the least bit of understanding of nutrition, but that's a side note. Vegans eat only plants. These two groups both believe that their approach is the only one that will lead to good health, and in fact that the other type of food is going to kill you. Both groups are actually extremists, actively engaging in intentional nutrient deprivation, making it a struggle to actually be healthy. Both make wild claims about the miraculous healing power of their particular diet. Each group thinks they are the healthiest humans alive 
and they fight relentlessly with one another. One of the biggest things I hope you take away from this episode is an appreciation for the very complex nature of health. Any person or program that tries to convince you there is one key factor to health or that you can take some easy, simple steps they have laid out and voila, you'll be healthy, is trying to further their own agenda, not help you. It might be tempting to buy into this oversimplification because complexity can be daunting, but you owe it to yourself and those who love you to use wisdom and be committed to the truth. You owe it to yourself to be a savvy health consumer. This is what I want to get into on the next episode. We'll discuss important basics of the scientific method and how science enables you to distinguish good information and good experts. We will go over the qualities that make for competent, trustworthy health experts. We will identify some good sources of information and how you can weed out poor quality information that might come across your feed or be sent to you by friends. I hope you will join us for that discussion. It's a topic I feel is vitally important. Thanks for listening to this episode of Hella Healthy. Have a hella great day and remember to be kind.